Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder and executive director of QuestionMark, the industry leader in assessment management software. Today, we welcome Paul Crump, who holds a first-class BA and an MSc in philosophy from the University of Edinburgh and an MA in applied linguistics from Anglia Ruskin University. After teaching English in the Czech Republic, Austria, and the UK, he joined Cambridge Assessment in 2008 and has been part of the admissions testing team since 2014. In his current role, he coordinates development of thinking skills, reading comprehension, and writing materials, which form part of a range of admission tests used in the higher and secondary education sectors. The tests are used for entry to a diverse range of courses, including medicine, linguistics, economics, and engineering, and are used by institutions, including the Universities of Oxford and Cambridge, University College London, Imperial and Leeds in the UK, as well as a number of universities and ministries of education around the world. Welcome, Paul. Welcome, John. Hi, thank you. It's really good to have you on the podcast, and I'd love to hear about your career in assessment today, and also a little bit about uh, critical thinking and problem solving and other kinds of tests, which I know you're a, a, a real expert in. But let's start off like I start with all my guests. How did you get into assessment? Thanks for the intro, John. Uh, yeah, so I started off really in uh, philosophy by education. So I started off um, doing an undergraduate and a postgraduate degree in philosophy, um, loved the subject, really enjoyed it, was contemplating doing a PhD, thinking about a possible career in academia, but then realised that I, I wasn't quite committed enough to go on to do a PhD I always think with a PhD, you should only do one if you can't stand the thought of not doing one. At least that's what my uh, master's degree supervisor told me. And I wasn't quite in that place. So I I left after my MSc. I left Edinburgh after my MSc. I then made a career in teaching English as a foreign language, um, moved around a little bit, spent some time in Central Europe, in the Czech Republic and in Austria, and then back in the UK, uh, in language schools and also in further education colleges. And then in 2008, I moved from teaching English to testing English when I joined Cambridge English um, to work on their language tests. I had actually been doing a little bit of assessment for them before I joined as an examiner on some of their writing and speaking English language tests. But then I started working for them officially, formally in 2008, worked on a number of different English language tests, including some business English certificates, some general English tests, started to do some project and test development work with some ministries of education. And then in 2014, there was an opportunity to move out of English language testing and into admissions testing, um, which was quite appealing because the work involved quite a lot of thinking skills, um, materials production. And with my background in philosophy, that was quite attractive. So, yeah, in 2014, 14, I started working in my present role. 
And so tell us a little bit about Cambridge Assessment, because I think they're a little bit of a hidden, char- hidden giant. I believe they've got 2,500 people working working for them, which must be one of the biggest assessment organisations in the world. Yeah, that's right. We're a very big organisation. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's something between, it's certainly over 2,000 uh, employees based all over the world. Obviously, our head office is in Cambridge, where I'm based, but uh, we also have offices all over the world. We employ people across a really broad range of roles. So there's obviously the kind of the core assessment team function, which I'm a member of, but as well as assessment, we've also got, I think, one of the the largest um, assessment research divisions in the world. Obviously, we also have people working in business development, people working in IT, um, a huge operations capacity of people who organise the printing and the dispatch of our materials, the entries and results, and also a kind of customer services wing as well that deals with candidates, customers, end users, um, does things like uh, look after our test venues around the world, organises centre inspections and so on. So, uh, yeah, we're a very large organisation. And and I believe you're actually part of Cambridge University, if it says that right. That's right, yeah. We're a non-teaching department of the university. We are a registered charity, so we don't make a profit as such. We make a surplus, which is ploughed back into the university. So, it's a sort of symbiotic relationship, really. We benefit a lot from being part of the university, and they they benefit from us in terms of the surplus that we plough back. And I should also probably mention Cambridge University Press as well, which is another large organisation that is also part of the university. So the three organisations, the university, the press, and Cambridge Assessment are all under one umbrella and all work closely together. So tell us about the thinking skills testing that you're involved with and which Cambridge Assessment has initiated. So thinking skills really emerged in, I think, the late 1980s, early 90s, when Oxford University were looking at their admissions procedures and were looking for a test that would help them distinguish between lots and lots of very able and very highly qualified candidates. And they wanted a test that would assess really important generic academic skills that could be applicable to a wide range of disciplines. They wanted a test that, as far as possible, could be resistant to coaching strategies, because as I'm sure many listeners will be aware, there's a very big kind of coaching industry for entry into the world's best universities. And so for both of those reasons, really, thinking skills kind of tick the box. And so a project was set up called the Mino Project to develop a thinking skills syllabus from which the first TSA, which is the thinking skills assessment, emerged. I think the first administration of TSA was around about 2003. And since then, the test has grown quite considerably, is still used by Oxford University, by a couple of courses at Cambridge University and has grown internationally as well um, so that we now have users in places as far afield as Oman, Malaysia, Sweden, India. So it's uh, it's really grown quite considerably. 
And the other thing to mention, sorry, John, yeah? Well, I was just going to ask, what do you mean by thinking skills? So so when you talk yeah. about thinking skills, what does yeah. it actually matter? Sorry, that's a very good question and one I probably should have addressed first. So our conception of thinking skills really comprises two main, if you like, sub disciplines and they are critical thinking and problem solving basically you can think of critical thinking as verbal reasoning and problem solving as more numerical or quantitative reasoning if you like so the critical thinking questions that we produce typically will have a short passage always in the form of some kind of argument where a writer is presenting a conclusion of some kind supported by reasons, premises. And there are different testing focuses within critical thinking, but they all essentially ask candidates to analyse and evaluate the structure of the argument and the claims being made in the passage. So they might, for example, ask a candidate to identify the main conclusion of the argument, to identify a flaw in the reasoning, perhaps look at um, additional evidence and assess what the impact of that might be on the claims being made in the argument, perhaps look at different arguments and say which one of them has the same form as the one being presented. So that's critical thinking. Problem solving, as I said, is more numerical, can be spatial reasoning as well. So these are everyday problems that don't present themselves with a sort of ready-made solution. Important to stress that they're not testing maths. They are quite different from, you know, maths tests or numeracy tests. The actual um, maths involved is usually fairly simple, is usually well below sort of GCSE level. But the trick is knowing really what the calculation is that needs to be made rather than the doing of the calculation itself, if that makes sense. So often candidates are asked to sort of find a procedure for solving an unfamiliar problem. They may be asked to identify similarities in patterns of data. They may be asked to look at a two or three dimensional shape and mentally manipulate it, rotate it in some way. And sometimes they're asked to do a type of question that we call relevant selection, where they're presented with a sort of, if you like, a kind of swimming pool of data uh, in the form of a table or a chart of some kind. And they're asked to sort of pick out the relevant data and discard that which is irrelevant. So in the pre-hire in the world work, there's a yeah. lot of verbal reasoning tests and numerical reasoning tests that almost feel like they're a bit of a commodity. Um, yeah. is, is critical thinking and problem solving just another name for those? Or is the Cambridge assessment approach superior in some sense in terms of better discriminating against people or better measuring? I would say that, that they're different. Our approach is different from a standard arithmetic test or test of you know literacy and numeracy in that we are really focusing on reasoning on those higher order skills of not just being able to do a calculation or you know read something and ask answer basic comprehension questions based on that but to actually come up with a solution to a problem where no obvious one exists if that makes sense. So it's about understanding the information that is presented to you, but also evaluating it or manipulating it in a way that tests, I think, a kind of higher order skill than that which is found in 
standard literacy and numeracy tests. That, that makes sense. So that you're more genuinely measuring real work skills for critical thinking and problem solving rather than sort of proxies for them? I'd say so. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And I'd say certainly in the kind of world of work, that's quite sort of authentic, really, in the sense that often roles require people who can think innovatively, who can not just understand and process information, but think critically about it, evaluate it and criticise it in some way. Well, I think we can all see that in current climate and future climates, critical thinking and problem solving will be very important skills. And I, I don't want this podcast to be a plug in any way, but um, question mark of just uh, licensed from Cambridge Assessment, the uh, thinking skills assessment, and there's a version of it which is available to our customers. And uh, we're very, very excited about that. Could we perhaps move on a little bit, Paul, into advice you can give other people who are creating questions and assessments? What good practice from Cambridge Assessment can you share with others, for example, uh, maybe a roundabout item writer training or other good practices that you could maybe share how other organisations can develop assessments? Certainly, yeah. So, well, you mentioned item writer training, John. That's something that we've been doing, obviously, for a very long time. And just to explain what we mean by item writers, these are external consultants who actually write and produce our examination material for us. So that's how we work in terms of item and content production. We use external consultants who typically meet our minimum professional requirements, who have a relevant background, have often been teachers. Many of them are current teachers or maybe retired teachers. And we commission them to write material and they send it to us. And then we put that material through a number of quality assurance processes in terms of pre-editing, editing, and finalising that material before it ends up in a live test. So that's what we mean. Sorry, just to preface the conversation. No, very that's helpful. What we mean by item writers. And so those item writers, yes, we help to train them. They are organised into small teams headed by what we call a chair, who is also uh, an external consultant, but who doesn't write material, but is sort of responsible for the academic content that is produced and is responsible for helping us make decisions about quality and what goes forward and what is rejected and so on. And so the chair and the assessment manager, who is a, uh, a member of Cambridge assessment staff who has responsibility for a, for a particular exam or a particular paper within an exam, will together lead the item writer training process. And we have, I suppose, two different sorts of item writer training. We have item writer training for brand new writers, so people that we recruit who are new to the whole process. And then we have sort of ongoing training for people in teams, which tends to happen on an annual roughly an annual basis, sometimes more often, depending on the particular requirements of the exam, the paper and so on. With brand new writers, we, from time to time, if we need writers for a particular project or paper, we will advertise externally and we will get people in usually for an initial weekend of training where we will get people into our head office in Cambridge. We will give them lots of presentations explaining what we do 
typically before they arrive at that meeting, they will have done some preparation as well. We will have sent them some uh, sample material to look at. We will have also probably sent them copies of our item writer guidelines, which are detailed specifications for writers, which set out um, what we're looking for and how they should approach the writing of each particular task within a paper. And then over the course of that weekend, we will put them in groups. Um, we will get them to produce small samples of writing. We will get them to look at prototype items and say whether they're good or bad or what's wrong with them. We'll observe them as well, sort of in interacting with each other, because one of the things we're looking for in writers is people, not only people who can produce really good material, but people who will also work well in a in an editing meeting, for example, with others where we're discussing each other's work, because that's quite important as well. And then following that, we will typically ask people to do a short training commission of a small number of items, and we'll get those back. We will have a look at those, we'll edit that, we'll give them some feedback, and depending on really how well that goes, um, they'll be invited or not to join the team and write on a more regular basis. So that's really our approach to onboarding new writers. As I said, there's also this sort of ongoing training that happens, and that can have many different forms, really, depending on the particular test involved. Very often, though, it will involve analysis to some extent of statistics, because one of the things that we do following every live session is produce statistics looking at the performance of our items. So we look at um, things like facility stats, what percentage of the candidature got a question right. We look at discrimination, how well a particular item discriminated before between rather the stronger and the weaker students in a test will also produce difficulty statistics using something called the rash modeling technique. And so training will often involve, to some extent, looking at those statistics and trying to work out why a particular item or task worked really well and another didn't. And sometimes that's obvious and clear, and sometimes it's really not. And we find ourselves scratching our heads wondering, why did that work and, and that task didn't work? Um, but there's often very useful lessons to be learned from analysing those stats. I'm sure we can all uh, relate to that because uh, uh, we we just uh, produced a cybersecurity test and did a lot of item analysis on it prior to uh, going live. And some of the questions we thought were good uh, were not, and, and and vice versa. There's no substitute for actual practical experience. So I mean, this item writing stuff sounds really really useful and interesting, and I think other people could learn from that. Uh, how important do you think the quality of the item writer training is to the quality of the items? I would say absolutely key, John, really. Ideally, all of the kind of quality assurance of test production, I think, should be front-loaded. So if you if you start with very good material submitted by your writers, then that makes the rest of it so much easier then, really. Um, it makes the editing easier when you do, if you do any pre-testing or trialling, then that will tend to go better, which means that you don't need to make any substantial changes prior to items going in live. So I think it's absolutely fundamentally important. It's difficult. It's not easy. I think our experience has shown that 
you know, getting a team of the right sort of number of people. Typically, we would have somewhere between six to 12 writers in a team, depending on the particular needs of the of the paper. But having that sort of size of a team with a chair, having a settled team um, that can learn over time and develop their skills, I think is quite important as well. And having a, a sort of a strong chair who knows the paper well, we've also found, you know, very useful. And how do you think, so extrapolating that to a smaller organisation that's um, uh, trying to professionalise their assessment development, it, it sounds like some key things to do are to put in place item writer training, to put in place item writing guidelines, yeah. any any sort of tips on the guidelines that, that people could perhaps adapt for themselves? So, yeah, our guidelines, um, it's a sort of technical document, really. Um, and again, it will differ slightly depending on what, what the test is. But it needs to set out very clearly what the test specification is and some rationale for the test specification. It then needs to go into some detail, I think, on each task within a test and explain what the different types of question are, what the testing focus is. This is quite an obvious point, but sort of do's and don'ts for writers are useful. What type of text, for example, they should include and what they should avoid and why. Examples of question types that work well and perhaps those that haven't worked so well are useful for writers. And I think it's also probably useful if you if you think of the, the guidelines as a fairly dynamic document as well. That can be amended over time in response to writers' feedback because, you know, it's important to make sure that those guidelines are doing the job for your writers and are maximally useful for them. So getting their feedback, getting their ideas and, and being able to sort of revise those guidelines over time, I think is useful as well. So moving on, once you've written the items, uh, what sort of quality assurance? You mentioned there was a sort of process there. I presume it varies a bit between exams and questions, but can you share any sort of general good practice guidelines there? Yes. Yeah, so um, we have sort of three three main stages, really, prior to assessments going live or tasks, I should say, going live. The first is what we call pre-edit. So that's the stage where we will give kind of broad brush feedback to the writers and we'll also make accept or reject decisions. Sometimes uh, writers will just submit tasks that just aren't appropriate. They're off spec, they're too easy, they're too difficult, there's some issue with the topic, for example. And so in those cases, we'll be forced to sort of reject those items. But I'd say we'd aim normally to accept at least 80% of the items submitted in any one commission. We'll give, as I say, we'll give writers some sort of broad brush feedback there and ask them to usually make a few changes. And that then feeds into the next stage, which is editing. And editing, unlike pre-editing, involves the writers themselves. So the editing uh, meetings in normal times uh, are an on-site face-to-face meeting with three or four writers and a chair and an assessment manager who have all before the meeting looked at each other's items and um, perhaps noted some potential uh, amendments. Each meeting lasts a day and you might for one commission have three or four days of editing. 
And in those meetings, you will go. Yeah, it's quite a it's quite a labour intensive process. But in those meetings, you will uh, go through the material item by item, almost sort of pretty much line by line, just checking that it all makes sense. It's all correct. The answer is definitely the right answer. The distractors, the wrong answers are definitely wrong, but at the same time, tempting and work and make sense, you know, that the item is on spec and so on. So you want at the end of that process those items to be in the very best shape possible so that they can then be uh, moved on to the third and final main stage, which is trialling or pre-testing, where we will ask candidates to take the assessments. And on the basis of that, we will compile some statistics on how well they worked. And then we'll review those statistics and decide whether an item is ready to go forward into a live test, whether it needs to be completely rejected because it it failed miserably, or whether it needs some amendments and needs to go sort of back round the loop and be pre-tested again. So those are the three main routes. So that's the typical QA process. Thanks, Paul. So perhaps I could ask you, what's a typical day like in your job at Cambridge Assessment? Thanks, John. Yeah, it's it's not, of course, at the moment, as you're talking to me, it's not a typical day because we're uh, under the, co- the COVID-19 virus lockdown. So uh, things are all a little bit up in the air. But um, thinking back to a normal day when I'm at our uh, our headquarters in Cambridge, it can be it can be very varied, actually. There's usually typically quite a lot of meetings, as in most jobs, to talk about ongoing projects, to plan, to organise and look ahead to... Um, projects and deadlines that we've got looming. I am a line manager as well, so I have a small team of three staff who report to me. So I work very closely with them. Um, quite often, we will be also in meetings with customers. So in admissions testing, our customers are the institutions who use our tests for admissions purposes. So quite often we will have meetings or conference calls with them, sometimes existing customers, sometimes potential new customers um, about their requirements and seeing whether or not we have products and services that could be useful. And then there's also, you know, work actually with assessment materials, looking at items and tests, signing off tests, what we say, we call it working items, actually doing the questions as candidates would um, and noting down feedback as well. So yeah, it's it's quite a, a varied role, I'd say. Last question. Yeah. I appreciate that some things will be confidential, but what can you share on areas you're looking to improve in the future? Yeah, so one area that we, well, a couple of areas actually that we have moved into recently. The first, you mentioned the work that we've been doing with Question Mark, uh, looking at the use of thinking skills for the corporate sector. So that's a fairly new avenue for us. And as I explained, you know, traditionally our assessments have been used for higher education admissions. But that is an area that we are looking to work more in. And so we've been doing some groundwork on on that and thinking about what, if any, changes we might need to make to our approach to assessment and to our materials to make them appropriate and useful for that market. And the other the other market that we have moved into over the last year or so is um, schools 
the schools market and admission into schools. Not so much in the UK, although we have done a little bit of work with um, schools in the UK, but project work with ministries of education overseas, who a couple of whom have come to us and asked for admissions tests for highly selective schools where those ministries are looking to admit gifted and talented students into uh, specialist schools. And we have been writing thinking skills tests and also mathematics tests to help them with that. Thank you, Paul. I genuinely believe that assessment can make a difference to society as we come out of the pandemic. I very much enjoyed speaking with you, particularly interesting to hear about thinking skills, as organisations really need people with good critical thinking skills, good problem-solving skills as we come out of all this. Also fascinating to hear about how Cambridge organises its item-writing teams. I think this is something that everybody wants to improve in, and it seems like you have a very well-developed system. You're welcome. Thanks very much, John. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please reach out to me directly at john at questionmark.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Question Mark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars we host monthly. Thanks again, and please tune in next time for another exciting podcast discussion. Mm-hmm.